Glory be to God the Father. Glory be to God the Son. Glory be to God the Spirit. The Lord is our salvation. There's been so much truth already this morning that we've sung. Thank you, Cameron. Thank you, worship team, for pointing us to Jesus with those scripture-rich, gospel-rich songs. Praise the Lord. You know, we've come to worship this morning. We've come to worship a risen, holy, righteous, victorious King. And, you know, we just finished, uh, last Sunday we finished a 14-sermon, three-summer uh, uh, schedule through the, the book of James. And I want to kind of wrap it up with some similarities that we find in the Sermon on the Mount. So through all of those sermons, we kept hearkening back to Proverbs 1 through 9, right? And also to the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 through 7, because there are so many parallels in the letter from James. And so today I just want to spend a little bit of time in the way that Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount to put our feet on solid ground. You know, I want you to remember one thing as we walk through this text today. There is freedom in surrender. There is freedom in surrender, obedience to Christ. And so Jesus, when he comes along and everyone is waiting, this he, in the previous verses to, to Matthew 5, when, when the Sermon on the Mount begins, Jesus is healing people, right? Jesus is casting out demons. Jesus is healing people. He is, and the crowds are coming. There's something different about this man. So finally, when the Sermon on the Mount takes place, there are so many people gathered to see what's going on. We've been waiting for a Messiah. Oh, good. We've been trying to, to bust out of this, you know, uh, having Rome over us. Maybe he's the one that's going to come and lead us out in this militant spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. And real quick, everyone realized there is something different about this man. This is not at all what we expected. He also comes along and he clarifies the law. From the very beginning, he is very clear that he has all authority to speak into the law and to tell you exactly what it means. Things like this. He says, okay, so you don't commit adultery? Wonderful. But you want to, don't you? And that's terrible, and that's sin in your heart. He says, you don't kill, but there are people you hate, aren't there? And he starts to make people think, like, it's not just about the things I do. He's looking at our heart. You know, there was a devotional. I, I, most days I try to read this online devotional, which is, you know, one of the most famous devotional books, My Utmost for His Highest, by Oswald Chambers. And one about two Mondays ago, on July 24th, um, it was really, really helpful. And I wanted to share with you the beginning of that and the end of it, because I think it's a great foundation for our text today. So this devotional was based on just a, a part of a verse of Matthew five twenty, where Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And so he starts by saying this, the characteristic of a disciple is not that he does good things, but he is good in his motives, having been made good by the supernatural grace of God. The only thing that exceeds right doing is right being. He looks at our hearts. And it ends this way. The purity that God demands is impossible unless I can be remade within. And that's exactly what Jesus has undertaken to do through his redemption. No one can make himself pure by obeying laws. Jesus Christ does not give us rules and regulations. He gives us his teachings, which are truths that can only be interpreted by his nature, which he places within us. The great wonder of Jesus Christ's salvation is that he changes our heredity. 
He does not change human nature. He changes its source and thereby its motives as well. And so I want to be sure that we're careful as we look at what Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. There are two ruts that we can fall into. One is to say, there, there's a list of things. If I do those things, I'm a good Christian. And the other side is to say, whoa, 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 don't put your legalism on me, man, right? And so we have these ruts that we tend to go into, especially based upon where we come from spiritually. What church did we used to go to? How were we raised in the faith, right? Was it a very legalistic environment? Was it a very permissive, you know, almost lawless environment where it's just, you know, whatever you do doesn't even matter. But there's something in between. There is a a way of living for Jesus Christ, empowered by the gospel for his glory that's being being considered here. He's not just looking at the things we do. He is looking at our hearts. He's looking at our desires, right? We have to remember that the word of God says, you are not your own, right? You're bought with a price. So look now, please. Our text is Matthew 7, 24 through 27. I'll give you just a minute to get there. Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Let me read our text for us. It's this. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Verse 26, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Now go back to our text in a nutshell, which is this. Jesus gave his inaugural address with authority. He turned unconventional wisdom upside down and called all who would listen to live out the words he had spoken. To follow Jesus is to come to the end of ourselves and to trust him as our only hope in this life and for all of eternity. To come to the end of ourselves and to trust him as our only hope in this life and for all of eternity. So we have four points today. And there are these. One is who's in charge here? What is best for you? These words of mine and for us and not against us. So our first point is this, who's in charge here? So verse 24, just the opening words of the first phrase of verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine, he's right there claiming authority. These are my words I'm giving you. And I expect you to listen, I expect you to obey, and I expect you to live this way. But you know, there's a, there's a problem that we have when it comes to someone trying to speak into our lives, right? Isn't it hard sometimes when someone tries to speak authority into your life how easily we can bristle against that. When I say you are not your own, is there a part of you that goes, mm, man, I have trouble with that one, right? Isn't that the spirit of our age? Whatever it is that comes to my mind, whatever it is I decide will define me, that's the thing. And you better applaud it. You better tell me it's wonderful or you hate me, right? It's so off base and it's so godless to think this way. But isn't there a tinge of that in our hearts? This little part that we want to hold on to and say, yeah, that part's mine. This part is me. Don't touch this part. And the root of all of that is pride, At the beginning of all of this, if we don't like the thought of someone having authority over us, if we don't like the thought of the Lord himself having authority over us, it's pride. Questions you ask yourself, like, do you you have any idea who I am? Who do you think you are? Like, whoa, who put you in charge? Or if I was in charge, I would do it this way. The foundation 
of every sin is pride. And it's making ourselves God. You see, every sin that we do, every sin that is, is, permeates our heart and comes out of us in various different ways is based on something that we're living for. The idol, right? The thing that we're worshiping. But the foundation of all of that is pride. And you guys, stop thinking about Wordle. I know after I made this slide, I realized it looks a little bit like a Wordle screen, but it's not the point. It's trying to make words out of the diagonals and whatnot. Don't do that. And so... <laughs> There are a couple there, right? <laughs> the root of all of it is pride, and pride in its essence is making ourselves God. When we decide that we know better, isn't that what leads us to decide we're going to worship something else? God says, honor me in this. This is the way I want you to live. And we say, no, 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 no. But just this once, I feel like maybe I know better. Isn't that exactly what Eve says, right, to herself? When she looked at the fruit and saw that it was good for food. Okay, so God said don't eat it. And she saw it was good for food. Pride. And it's at the root of every other thing that separates us from God. Every time we are in sin and we chase something that isn't honoring to him, it's pride. Who do we think that we are? The foundation of every sin. Whether it's lust or envy or hatefulness or stealing or harming someone physically or emotionally, we've decided that our way is better than God's way. And that feeds our idols, controls our desires. Think about how it generally goes for you when you brace against authority, right? Which is like, you know what? I just don't want, who are you to tell me? But the Lord has given us specific commands, right? To love one another, to put others before ourselves, to love our neighbor. Even at the root of this is the fact that we should be putting other people before ourselves no matter what, whether or not they're in authority over us. We think so much of ourselves. That's why so much of the word, Jesus tells us again and again, love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God uh, with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's no such good friend as one that would lay down his life. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, right? Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality quality with God, a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself, he emptied himself, make less of yourself, but our pride says no, make more, make as much as we possibly can. And when we're called to love our neighbor, this is not contingent on whether or not they love us. This is not contingent on, well, if someone doesn't love me well, then I'm free and clear. No, he says love your neighbor. And I think we tend to have trouble trusting that someone wants what's best for us, because don't we know ourselves? We know deep in our hearts that we were at the center of our story. And so when I talk about trust, I mean, if we're going to obey the Lord, if we're going to say the Lord is in charge, there's this amount of trust in him that's implicit in this as well. But he's given us authority in our lives as a picture of the absolute authority that he alone has. We all affirm that God is in charge. But just ask yourself if your life actually reflects that and how you spend your time what we fill our heart with, how we treat others. So then along comes Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. He's the Lord to the glory of God the Father. And he says this, he has ultimate authority. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name and then will I declare to them I never knew you depart from me you workers of lawlessness who is in charge the Lord himself is in charge and it's funny because there's something here that I had never seen before when you're reading these verses 
when people like to say, you know, Jesus never said he was God. Look at what he says here. He just told a lot of people that they would be talking to him on judgment day. He says, one day you will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this in your name? And I will say to them, whoa, if you have ears to hear, he said it from day one. From the first time he got up and addressed his crowds, he says, listen, on judgment day, you're going to be talking to me. Jesus Christ is God. He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He said they'd call him Lord and that they will say, I did things in your name. He has all, of, all authority. So that first point is who is in charge here? To consider that to yourself. Who is in charge? Are we comfortable letting go and realizing it is surrender that brings freedom? He is the one in charge, and he is the only one who has the ability. I mean, where do you want your life to be? In your own hands? Or in the the hands of the one who created you with a word? So we must surrender. We must rest in Christ. So the first one was, who's in charge here? The second point is this. What is best for you? And so the bulk of our text, the bulk of like the pulling, pulling truth out of these four verses will come from point two today. So it says in verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So I kind of touched on trust a moment ago, but trust is a big deal because in our hearts, we can easily, our default is to make ourselves the center of the world, right? The center of our story. First thing you think about when you wake up, it's about you, Right? What am I going to do? I, mean, I, I got to brush my teeth. I got to comb my hair. Many people do that. I've got to get my breakfast. I have to be out of the house at this time. Me, 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 me. It's our default. Every day we wake up selfish, don't we? And so when it comes to trusting, we have to trust that someone else would have our best at, in their heart for ourselves. And we realize deep inside because of our nature, that's, that's a lot of the time not the case when we're thinking about others. We're thinking about us. He said to put other first, to love our neighbor, and to treat them how we want to be treated. And we tend to have trouble trusting because we know ourselves. You know, the travesty of all of this is that we apply that to God as well. How many people will say to you, you know, I'm not sure God wants what's best for me. I'm not convinced of that. Over the years, how many times I've heard that and maybe wrestled with that over the years as well. What if I let go Trust him, what if it's not what I wanted? Well, that's not the same question. Is what's best for you what you want? Or is what's best for you what God wants? You know, I've heard it said this way. Some people see God as a father who takes you to the most amazing toy store you've ever seen in your life, right? So you walk into this toy store and he says, look at this. And you say, wow, look at that. And then look at this. Oh, that's amazing. And do you like that? Would you like that? Oh, oh, I would love that. And then after 30 minutes of walking around the store and pointing things out, he takes you to the door and says, you know what, you can't have any of it. Let's go. And a lot of us will apply that to God. How do I know? There's so many things in this world that I want, and how do I know he's going to give them to me? We're not even asking the right questions. Is Is that how you see him? Isn't that part of why we can have trouble trusting in his will for our lives? 
because we've already decided what we want. And when what we want is for him to line up his will with our decisions and our plans. And ask this of yourself today. Do you believe that God loves you? What's sad is how many people in the room probably was like, yeah, I know, but... Like, is that, if that's not the center of your Christian walk, what a waste. Do you believe that God loves you? That he is glad, if you are in Christ this morning, that he is glad when he thinks about you. When you are on his mind, there is gladness there, that he smiles, that he, do you believe that? Or is this one of these, you know, ah, you know, I could do better. He's probably so frustrated with me. He's probably so tired of me having to start over. Same sin again and again. It's not the gospel. Because if you don't believe that he loves you, if you don't believe that he smiles when he looks on you, how are you going to trust that he wants what's best for you? And then how are you going to obey him if you don't trust? You know, there's a really great, great thing for us to filter our minds through that I read in a book last year. It says, you will not love him unless you know him, right? If you pursue this relationship, you get in the word, you hear the preaching of the word, you sing gospel-rich songs, you, you get with other people who love Jesus, let them speak into your life, right? How are you going to love the Lord if you don't know him? And you're not going to trust him unless you love him. And you're not going to obey him unless you trust him. Proverbs 3, 5 through 8 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. You see this every time there is a call to obey and a call to trust. There's also this word of because it's really good for you. We forget how much he loves us. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Trust the Lord because it's better for you. John 15, 7 through 9. Jesus says, if you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Verse 9 goes, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Abide in me, bear fruit, and at the root of all of it, realize that I love you. I love the Father, the Father loves me, I love you. This is the root of all of it. And if it's not at the basis of our Christian walk, it's empty, and it's going to exhaust you. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, it says this, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And finally, Galatians 2, 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I have now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. It's almost like we can just skim over that word in these texts. We take the point as something else. Oh, there's the thing I need to do in this text. Here's the thing I need to do in this text. I need to make this list. All right, marching orders achieved. I'm going to go be a good Christian now. It's all fueled by the fact that Jesus loves you. And that has to be permeating every area of your life and soaking into your heart. So back to our text now. Matthew 5, 24, second half. says, Any, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now here's not what he's saying. Do what I say or else. 
He's saying this, I've told you how to live for, you know, he's not saying chapters, but I've done this for three chapters now, right? I have told you clearly that I'm God. I want you to know what is best for you, right? So we have to remember the gospel. Youth, we just talked about this. Jesus died for our sins and rose again. And so now we can be his. So that we would, we would have a, to follow, not that we would follow a bunch of rules and stop being bad, but that we could be free from the power of sin and have life and joy and peace. Over the course of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus turns all modern convention on its ear to show us how to build our lives on a sure foundation. He says, build your life, right? And he says, you do the things I've said, it's like you're building your house on the rock. If you don't do the things I said, you're foolish and your house is going to flood away. It's just going to be washed away in the rains and in the flood. And when trouble comes, either your house is going to stand or it's going to be leveled and washed away. And the way he ends these, he says, and great was the fall of it. We follow Jesus as he gives us his word, as he gives us his word for our lives. We employ these things in our lives. He says, when the rain comes and it is coming, your house will stand. It's like putting a little bit at a time away in the bank, right? And then when that financial disaster comes, okay, it's there, it's built up. But when that financial disaster comes and there's nothing to draw from, it's terrifying. What in the world am I going to do? Just build your life brick by brick, a little bit at a time. Follow me. Look to the words I've just said to you in this sermon. Live these words. And when the rain comes, when the persecution comes, when the oppression comes, when the difficulty comes, when the heartbreak comes, when the cancer comes, whatever it is, fill in the blank here, your house will stand. But if you don't, it's going to be washed away. These rains that come, this storm that comes will flood your life and completely crush your house that you've built on sand. The reason he gives you for obedience is that his way is best, that he doesn't want your life to be a constant state of stress, cleanup of messes, discouragement, and bitterness. So let's look now at the third point, which is this, these words of mine. So he's closing out his messages now from verses 24, in verses 24 and 26, right? He says, do them, your house will stand, don't, it'll be rumble, and what, these, what, what are these words of his? So when he says, do these words of mine, he's referring back to his sermon, right? Just like last week in James, in chapter five, he says, if anyone strays from the truth, and we recapped a bit and says, well, what is the truth? All these things I've said to you for five chapters, right? Please refer to chapters one through five, right? So what are these words of his? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those that are persecuted for his sake. Blessed are those who are persecuted and slandered because of his name. He says, change your priority. Change what success looks like. Be salt and light in a dark and decaying world. He says, anger in your heart's like murder. He says, lust in your heart is adultery. He said, don't just divorce your spouse because you're tired of him or her. He said, don't take oaths and try to strengthen your perceived integrity by invoking the name of the Lord. He said, don't retaliate, but love your enemies. Give to those in need and don't seek attention for it. Are any of these like ringing a bell and you're like, man, that's the opposite of what I did last week and something broke, right? He says, do these, these, these words I said and your house will stand. If you don't, your house will fall. 
Don't make a big deal when you fast, but do so in secret. Lay up treasures in heaven. You can't take it with you. Don't give yourself over to anxiety, but trust him. Don't judge people. Get the log out of your own eye. Ask God for what you need and trust him. A true true follower will bear good fruit. And obedience on the surface without a heart for Jesus is not a sign of salvation. He'll tell people with a heart like that, I never knew you. Here it is. What do I do? What's God's will for my life? Matthew 5 through 7 is a pretty good way to start. How does he want us to live? What does it mean to follow Jesus? There it is. I don't know what God wants for me in my life. Well, look. Look to his word. Matthew 5 through 7, James 1 through 5, Ephesians 4 through 6. These are places we can go and get a really good handle on what it means to follow Jesus, the life that he would have us to live, empowered by him for his glory. He says, I don't want your life to fall apart. I don't want you to be caught off guard when the floods come. Now, this is really interesting. So this is something I learned this week that I had no idea. So in like the Middle Eastern areas and in um, Israel as well, so what we have are these areas called wadis, W-A-D-I. This is a dried out riverbed. No doubt when Jesus gave this sermon, he probably could have gestured over to one, right? And so this is land that most of the time is bone dry No one's using it. And if someone gives you the wisdom to say, don't build a house there, you may think to yourself, why? There it is. I'm going to go build me a house there. I mean, it's it's open land. No one's using it. It's it's a bad idea. Don't do it. But my wisdom, I'm going to follow my wisdom. I'm going to do that. But what happens every so often where no one expects, unless you've seen it before, is the rain happens in the mountains, builds up, and within minutes... That dry riverbed is a raging river, just like that. This is what Jesus is referring to. He says, when the rain comes, when the floods come, that's going to take your house down. This is something that they could have understood. He's saying, listen, don't build your house over there. Listen to me. It's like building it on a solid rock over here. So I have this video. Hopefully it'll play for you. I've shortened it just a little bit. But as you can see, it's a very bad quality video. But you know, what do you want? All right. And so... um, here we go. As you can see, the, so this is all dry. Now it's, it's starting right here. Just watch over 30 seconds what happens. Where's the rest? Well, anyway, it becomes a raging river, uh, in case you're wondering. Uh, the video's a little longer, but it's pretty amazing that all of a sudden, when they pan back to the place that was bone dry, it's just raging, right? It's already a couple feet deep, and that's within minutes, right? So he's saying, when the rain comes, when the floods come, it's going to destroy your house if it's not founded on a rock. And so finally, he is for us and not against us. I want to say something that I want to I just make sure is clear in all of our minds, The gospel is not do better and try harder. Jesus already did better, tried harder than anybody, and succeeded. The gospel is that we rest in him, that he died for our sins, that he rose again, and now we are free from the power of sin and death in the grave when we walk in him, right? To know him, to love him, to trust him, to obey him. Knowing him comes with understanding of how this relationship works. I want you to just rest for a moment in who Christ is 
and what he's done on your behalf and the understanding that he loves you. When he calls us to obedience, he's not sitting there with a switch and a clipboard being like, I said to obey. He knew exactly who you are. God knew exactly who you are before he said, let there be light. He's not surprised at all at the fact that you're a fallen person. He saved you and is continuing to save you and will one day ultimately save you from sin, from death, from the grave, and from yourself. And he cares for our hearts. When he says, do these words that I've said, we read in our religious minds, okay, there's my list. If I do that, I'm a good Christian, just like Jesus said. No, he's saying, listen, I love you. I want what's best for you. Followers of mine will live this way. And you watch, the world will look in and see that there is something different about you. You will have peace. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Rest, stop trying so hard. John 14, 1 through 4, he's just had the Last Supper with his disciples. He's just been very clear that this is it. Like, I'm, I'm going to die for the sins of the world. One of you is about to betray me. And then finally Judas gets up and he leaves. He knows very well within hours he's going to be severely beaten and put on a cross. And he says to the disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you I go to prepare a place for you? I'm coming back for you. He's encouraging them. He's saying, follow me. And he knows full well they're all about to scatter. But he's ministering to them because he loves them. And he realized he is the one, the only one with the power for any kind of faithfulness in this walk. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, this is Philippians 2, not only as in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for God works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. He is in this with us. He hasn't given us this list of things to do, and now he's watching every little move and saying, ah, thought you wanted to follow me. That's not the gospel. After, at the very end of this farewell address in John, John 17, the high priestly prayer, he says, he's praying to the Father and he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. He's praying for them. And then he prays for us. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, us, that they will may all be one, just as you, Father, in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the word may believe, the world may believe that you have sent me. And he continues to pray for us. Romans eight thirty four says he's interceding for us. He has said, Obey me, bear fruit, trust me, prove to the world that you are mine. And remember this, you are his. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Let your walk with Christ be built on the foundation of the fact that he loves you, would never leave you or forsake you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. This salvation is about him and we get to be the beneficiaries of that. We get to benefit from that. He's the one who saved us. He is the one who will hold us securely. If you're not in Christ this morning, that doesn't apply to you, and I want it to be. You have to remember this, that God made this world, it was perfect. 
And not long into our Bible, just a couple of pages in, we see that that humans rebelled and sin entered the world. And now every single one of us, because of that first sin, is born with a sin nature, down to the core. And there's nothing we can do about it. There's nothing we can do to fix it. There's no righteousness in and of ourselves. And we deserve, very rightfully and justly, to die and to go to a very real place apart from God called hell. But Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life that we could never live. He died a death on the cross that you and I deserve to die. Three days later, he rose again, conquering sin and death and the grave. And he says, turn from your sin. Follow me. Repent of your sin. I'll forgive you. I'll give you a new heart. You'll be mine in this life and forever. Let's pray. Lord God, we love you. And we thank you that you brought us together this morning. We thank you that you are for us and not against us. Lord, you don't leave us as orphans, as you've said. You are with us. And now the Holy Spirit is here to help us to follow you, uh, to guide us uh, as worshipers. Lord, I pray that you would help us now. Whatever's going on in our hearts, whatever's coming to mind, this, this, this thing in my life is just getting between me and the Lord. I pray that you would convict hearts today, Lord. I pray that the free gift of salvation would be evident and true to someone in this room today. And I also pray that there's someone that that is following you and has, has fallen away, that would return to you, knowing that your word says, if we confess our sin, you're faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Lord, I pray now as we move into this time of communion, as we remind one another of of, uh, the fact that Jesus Christ is our only means of salvation, that you allow us to contemplate these things and to be grateful for the cross and to celebrate your victory. In Jesus' name, amen.